0: Have you ever had that feeling when you leave the doctor's office and think, what did they just say? Or have any burning questions you didn't have time to ask? Or, I don't remember anything that just happened in that appointment. Or even, were they speaking my language? Yeah, us too. That's where we come in. We're the podcast dedicated to helping you understand what your doctor said about that thing you saw your
1: doctor for in the first place. We understand it can be an information overload. We're here to help. I'm Dr. Josh Fletcher, a family medicine resident at North York General
0: Hospital in Toronto. And I'm Jake Bloom, the person who doesn't know what's happening at the doctor's office. Welcome to Dr. Dictionary.
1: I just want to make a quick disclaimer that this podcast isn't meant to be a replacement for a traditional doctor's appointment nor is it meant to be providing medical advice. Rather, it's meant to be a supplement to your doctor's visit and explain why your doctor asked what they asked and help you explain the diagnosis and common treatment plans. Lastly, doctors often have very different styles and approaches to a patient and their diagnosis. If we discuss a question or treatment plan that your doctor didn't mention, that doesn't mean that they were wrong. This could represent a different in practice style or simply the fact that your doctor knows you better than we do and has created a treatment plan that better fits your lifestyle.
0: Welcome to another edition of Dr. Dictionary, the podcast explainer for all your questions before, during, or after your visit to the doctor. I'm Jake Bloom, and joining me to discuss all things IBS is Toronto resident doctor Josh Fletcher. What's up, doc?
1: As well as I can be doing during a pandemic, how about you?
0: You know, not doing too bad, not doing too bad. Uh, Thanks for asking. Uh, Well, I was telling you uh, this before we started recording, but this is probably the first topic that I didn't have any really real general knowledge on. So I'm excited to learn a little bit about it and by the end, convince myself that I definitely have it. So let's start off with the basics on IBS. What exactly is irritable
1: bowel syndrome? So irritable bowel syndrome, also known as IBS, is one of the most common gastrointestinal or stomach issues that we see in Canada. The hallmark of this condition is chronic Recurrent abdominal pain that's associated with some sort of altered defecation or bowel movements. Now, that can be a change in the amount of times a day you go to the bathroom, how hard or soft your bowel movements are, or pain that's actually relieved by defecation. So who exactly gets IBS? So IBS affects approximately 10 to 20% of Canadians, so a huge chunk of the population It's most commonly diagnosed between ages 20 to 30, and the diagnosis of it decreases after age 50. That being said, you can still have flares any time throughout your lifetime. Lastly, it's more common in women than men. So what are some risks for actually developing IBS? A lot of people think that IBS was caused by something that they ate. While it's true that specific foods can worsen the symptoms of IBS which we'll talk about later in the episode, the actual cause of IBS isn't thought to be related to something you ate. I see, I see. It's actually associated with a lot of psychological disorders, like anxiety, depression, or stress reactions. It can also be associated with previous stomach infections like stomach flu and can be seen in this post-infectious window. It's also seen more commonly in patients who've had previous abdominal surgeries like gallbladder or appendix removal or removal of the uterus.
0: Okay, so what causes IBS? And like, how dangerous would you say it is? So
1: first of all, it's not dangerous. And we don't really know for certain what actually causes it. But we do have several ideas or several hypotheses, as we like to say. It can be related to infections and inflammation in the stomach and bowels. It can be related to changes in the bacteria that naturally live in the stomach, or too much bacteria that's living in the stomach, related to physical and emotional stress. And that makes sense because a risk for developing IBS is underlying psychological disorders like anxiety, depression, or stress reactions. Now, it can also be related to your diet. And like I said earlier, you don't get IBS from eating the wrong foods, but these foods can make it worse. So, Overall, we, again, don't know why we get IBS, but it's not dangerous and it's not thought to develop into any other diseases like Crohn's or colitis. So you mentioned it can
0: be related to diet. So if it's related to food, does it mean that someone may have an allergy to the specific foods that would then result in IBS? So that's a very
1: common question I hear in the clinic. And no, it's not an allergy. And it's a common misconception that some people have that this is some sort of food allergy.
0: So what's the difference then between an allergy and an intolerance? So an allergy
1: is an actual immune system response that's being activated because of that food. Okay. Normally, the immune system would be activated to fight off invaders. And for whatever reason, the immune system recognizes that food as an invader and activates its whole response and you get what we call anaphylaxis or some sort of other allergic symptoms. And if food intolerance, this doesn't actually occur. So because of that, there's no actual need for allergy testing. We just need to avoid these specific foods. And there are some foods that are more common triggers, and we'll talk about that later. But it's such a common question I get, do I need allergy testing because I'm allergic to this food? And the answer to that is no.
0: So you initially spoke about abdominal pain being one of the main symptoms. What other
1: symptoms can you experience because of this? So the most common symptoms that we see, recurrent abdominal pain or cramps, and we see that sort of hypersensitivity of the bowel or of the gut. Bloating is such a common symptom as well. And then like we talked about earlier, those changes in defecation are your bowel movements. Difficulty passing stool, straining Feelings of incomplete evacuation, like you're not emptying completely. That relief of pain after going to the bathroom or after passing gas. An urgent need for the toilet or even mucus over the stool. Other symptoms can include nausea, tiredness, or even bladder symptoms from being constipated. But the big ones we think about is that abdominal pain or cramping, bloating, and the changes in
0: defecation. How consistent do the symptoms have to be before you want to call it IBS?
1: So we like to see the symptoms persisting for at least one day per week in at least the last three to six months to be diagnosed with IBS. That being said, symptoms can fluctuate over the years. So for example, if you're very stressed, these symptoms can be quite exacerbated and you can be experiencing these a lot more than one day per week. They can also be complicated by depression and anxiety. So while we do want to have constant symptoms for a period of time to make the diagnosis, they're not always constant throughout time. All right, let's get into the nitty gritty. You
0: mentioned it being associated with the change in bowel habits. Is that more diarrhea or constipation? I never thought I'd be asking that over a podcast. So it
1: can occur with both constipation and diarrhea. And we have specific names for this. Constipation we call IBSC for constipation, and IBSD, or for diarrhea. And we can also have a mixed picture, because some people have both the constipation and diarrhea picture, which kind of alternates between the two of them. If I'm diagnosed with
0: IBS, when should I be worried that my symptoms aren't because of IBS? That's a
1: great question. So in general, it's important to let your doctor know if you're experiencing any new symptoms at any point in time. We do have red flags that we like to look out for that might signal something else happening that isn't IBS. So for example, weight loss, and that's unexplained weight loss, not if you're going to the gym and running and trying to lose weight. Seeing blood in your stool, anemia or symptoms of anemia, feeling tired, looking more pale, feelings of a lump in your stomach. If you're over 60, for example, and you have a change in bowel habits, if you're awakening from pain at night, or if you have a really strong family history of, for example, ovarian or colon cancer. Now, just because you might have some of these red flags doesn't mean you don't have IBS, or doesn't mean something worse is going on. Mm-hmm. But it's best to leave that up to your doctor.
0: So you're saying that someone who you may have initially diagnosed with IBS may all of a sudden may start having some of these symptoms as well, on top of just what we were discussing at the beginning of the podcast. And... Would you say that people sometimes misdiagnose these things for just part of their IBS?
1: So when someone has been diagnosed with IBS, sometimes they'll think, oh, any bowel symptom I have is related to my IBS. Right. So that's why I was saying it's very important that if anything changes in general, you should see your doctor. All right. Let's
0: talk about testing. Do you need a special test to diagnose IBS? So
1: the diagnosis of IBS is based on the history, physical exam, An absence of these alarm or red flag features I was just talking about. That abdominal pain relieved by defecation associated with changes in stool frequency and form. In terms of blood tests, we do sometimes do additional testing to make sure we're not missing other conditions like celiac disease. And then depending on your actual symptoms, your doctor may do even more additional testing to rule out other diagnoses or help make the diagnosis of IBS. And it's best to leave the exact testing up to your doctor.
0: So I guess other than the obvious, what are some of the problems that can arise from having
1: IBS? So IBS can really affect your quality of life. As you can imagine, having this change in bowel habits or this chronic abdominal pain can be really taxing. And it can also be associated with other things like sleep problems, back pain, pelvic pain, jaw pain or a diagnosis of fibromyalgia, which we may speak about in a future episode. As well, it's often associated with mental health disorders, and these can develop actually after being diagnosed with IBS. Anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, etc. And if this sounds like you, it's best to bring this up to your doctor as well. I see. But it sort of sounds like
0: your mental health finally turning into your physical health too. Like it kind of like the... uh your mental health almost showing itself in this physical form.
1: That's exactly right. And we actually call this phenomenon the mind-body connection or the mind-body axis, showing that there's a relationship between the body itself and the physical symptoms you're feeling and the mind. Mm -hmm. For example, when you feel very strong emotions like stress, anxiety, or depression, this leads to actual physical changes in the stomach or in the bowels that can cause some of these symptoms of IBS or that hypersensitivity. So there is definitely a connection between the two of them. Okay, Josh, in general, how do you treat IBS? So after we've diagnosed IBS and ruled out any other conditions, we start to think about treatment. And treatment is highly individualized, like all of medicine. We treat based on what's important to you. We base our treatment also on the subtype of IBS – Is it more IBS-C or that constipation, or IBS-D with diarrhea, or even both? Within treatment, diet plays a huge role. Physical activity can also be helpful in decreasing the symptom severity. As we were talking about before, strong emotions, stress, anxiety, panic, these can also be related to IBS, so making sure you're relaxing, eating and sleeping well, etc., can be very helpful. Interestingly enough, talk therapies, similar to depression and anxiety, those psychotherapies, can also be considered for IBS. And lastly, medications are another option. Let's talk about
0: specific foods. My doctor spoke to me about some foods to avoid and specific
1: diets to try. What what would you say about this? Firstly, it's important to note that certain foods can trigger the symptoms of IBS in some people. With IBS, we recommend regular, moderate-sized meals, and to ensure you're drinking enough water throughout the day. One type of food that seems to help with the symptoms of IBS are soluble fibers. Those are oats, psyllium, flax seeds, barley, oranges, beans. These types of foods can actually make your symptoms better. Other types of fiber, called insoluble fibers, can actually make symptoms worse in some people. An example of these is bran. Another diet your doctor may have discussed is called the low FODMAP diet. F-O-D-M-A-M-P. Now, if you're interested, because this is a weird word, it's an acronym that stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. Now, what does this even mean? So these are different types of carbohydrates that are indigestible and lead to bloating and gas. So overall, the takeaway isn't what the word means, but it's the specific foods to avoid that have these FODMAP compounds in them. Lists of these foods can be found online, and we'll post some of them in the description below. So if you're really trying to adhere to this diet, it's best to talk it over with your doctor or even a dietitian, as they can be very helpful. Now, overall, your doctor will give recommendations about which diet to try, which foods to avoid, which foods to take more of, and it's best to discuss this with them.
0: And these are foods that you may have an intolerance to that would be making your IBS worse, I suppose? Exactly. Okay. So, speaking of foods, what about a gluten-free diet? Does that help in any way?
1: Now, this diet's actually associated with a higher sugar intake, lower fiber and mineral intake, and it's quite expensive. With IBS specifically, we aren't 100% sure what effect it has, but at the moment we're not recommending it for patients. I've also read online
0: that some supplements or probiotics can help with IBS. So again, it's important to always
1: take what you read on Google with a grain of salt. It's important to consult your doctor before starting anything new in general. With probiotics, they can be quite useful in the treatment of IBS, but this really depends on the specific probiotic that's being used and what bacteria are in it. And again, talking to your doctor about this and which probiotics they recommend is helpful. Other supplements. We talked about psyllium before. Psyllium fiber can be quite useful. Peppermint oil has actually been found to be helpful, but does have some associated side effects like heartburn. Herbal remedies vary so greatly and don't have great evidence behind them. So again, it's best to leave this up to your doctor and anything that you're really considering, talk with them first.
0: So we were talking a little bit about medication before. What drugs do you use in treating IBS?
1: So there are a bunch of different medications that can be tried depending on if you mainly have constipation symptoms, diarrhea symptoms, or a mix. And again, like everything else, having that conversation with your doctor about which medications are right for you, if any, is an important conversation to have. And there's so many different medications, it's hard to go into the specifics of each of them and the side effects of each of them because they vary quite remarkably. Some examples... Drugs that decrease spasms in the bowel and affect the speed at which contents move through the bowel as well. There are also specific types of antidepressants that we can use in the treatment of IBS that aren't actually traditionally used for depression. Lastly, there are some drugs we can use in the short term that help correct that diarrhea or constipation you may be facing. And again, talking that over with your doctor is quite useful. And finally,
0: we, we should honestly sponsor this segment because it's a recurring one that's been going through the last couple of podcasts. What resources do you recommend for more information about IBS?
1: Yeah, if anyone wants to pay me, I'll take it. (laughs) HealthLink BC is the provincial website for British Columbia, and it has a lot of great information on IBS. BadGut.org, again, is another organization that has a lot of good information on IBS. Mount Sinai has a good page about the FODMAP diet and about diets specifically and foods to avoid. And then there's a specific organization dedicated to IBS called AboutIBS.org. And I'll link all four of these below in
0: the description. No, Josh, thank you so much for all this great information on IBS. I'm now convinced that I definitely have it. Um, <laughs> so if, uh, if people want to have further questions about IBS or really
1: anything, what should they do? So first of all, you should always go to your doctor if you have further questions, book another appointment. If you want, you guys can also email us at the at gmail.com or tweet us at the Doc Dictionary. I'd also like to thank Doctors Wyman, Korea, and Kahane, family doctors at Leslie Medical Family Health Organization in Toronto for peer-reviewing this episode, as well as Nick and John Bragagnolo for the original music.
0: All right, so for Jake and Josh, uh, that's another episode of Dr. Dictionary, and we'll see you next
1: time. Thanks for listening.